anything better to say. But I am going to try and say about the same thing by uh, mostly quoting Jesus and looking at his word. But uh, again, uh, the truth of uh, who, who Jesus is, uh, not, not much better. Uh, pretty exciting to see him work in uh, folks' lives. So we're coming up on uh, that celebration of Holy Week. Not this next week, but the, the, the week after. And uh, um, we're going to celebrate Monday, Thursday for some of you older folks, the Lord's Supper, but we're going to gather. We're actually going to have uh, kind of a, a, a live narrative. Heather will be doing that on Thursday night and uh, then Friday. You guys know I believe it's the most significant day in world history. We'll gather on Good Friday and then we'll gather on that Sunday morning. <laughs> Because after Good Friday, we do know, uh, know what happens. So we got a bunch of these in the back, but uh, th these are intended for you, but also take some of these, give them to your neighbors, give them to some of your friends. I think a great opportunity to invite folks to, uh, to come celebrate God's love as demonstrated in Christ's death uh, and uh, in his, his, his resurrection. So we're going to talk about the text, what's been going on. First 12 chapters were Jesus' three years of ministry, chapters 13 through 17, the Last Supper, and the things. Love one another. He told us that. All kinds of things going on there. Last week, we moved from the Last Supper, and, and Stephen did a nice job taking us to uh, Jesus' arrest. Now, again, what's interesting is John does not tell us much about that night. He tells us very little in comparison to synoptic gospel writers. Not many details, but he's focusing, Peter, uh, Stephen did a really nice job last week. John's focus is contrasting Jesus and Peter and their response to these, this situation. Today, we're going to go to Jesus, now brought to Pilate, and we're moving to next week. Next Sunday, we'll look at uh, the crucifixion and, uh, and what happens there. But here's the text for this morning. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, where we were last week, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Well, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show about what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth 
listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a rabbi. Father, I pray as we look at this text here this morning, I pray that you'd speak to our heads. And I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. You love us. That's why you sent your son into this world, because you love us. I pray as we look at this, you'd help us to see your love. I pray that you'd help us to feel your love. I pray that we would leave here with more confidence in Jesus. It's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus before Pilate. Jews don't go in because they don't want to be impure. They're trying to celebrate this extended Passover meal. Now, don't miss the irony here. They want to celebrate the Passover. You remember Egypt? They got to go free from there. All pointing to the ultimate Passover lamb. So you got these guys wanting to stay pure while they manipulate the judicial system there. They know there's nothing Jesus has done that warrants his being put to death by a Roman official. Nothing. They're manipulating the system, and they're actually bringing the Passover lamb to his death. Don't miss it. It's crazy. The Jews can't give any detail about what Jesus did wrong that would satisfy Pilate. Here's their answer. What did he do wrong? Would we have brought him to you if he hadn't done something wrong? Trust us. Pilate finds him not guilty. He should just release him because he hasn't done anything wrong. And I know life is tough. We all get caught in unfair circumstances. Guys, this is the ultimate unfair circumstances. You actually are completely innocent of everything. The guy that's sit there to judge, you can't find anything, and he doesn't let you go. We see a lot about Pilate's character because he ends up releasing Barabbas. Now, different than the text from last week, John is going to tell us more about the interaction with Pilate than the synoptic gospels do. He didn't tell us much about the garden experience, a lot of details he left out, but he actually tells us more about this account than, than Matthew, Mark, and, 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 and Luke. The other Gospel writers, though, here will tell us he, he was not only a robber, he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. He was actually opposing the Romans. So this was, by contemporary standards in that day, this was a really, 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 really bad dude. And they said, release him rather than Jesus. Now, I see two main ideas that John, inspired by God here, is trying to communicate. We're going to focus on that this morning. Uh, 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 two main ideas that Jesus is promoting that John wants to make sure we get. And the first one is that Jesus came, in, uh, came into the world here to initiate his kingdom for our good. The kingdom of God gets started with Jesus. And the kingdom of God exists right now. It's a present reality for our benefit. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? Are you really asking or are you just in your formal role here? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Again, to some degree, assuming he's done something. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting like Peter did uh, uh, when he cut off Malchus' ear. Jesus didn't say, hey, thanks for trying to defend me. Jesus said, you don't get who I am. You don't get what my kingdom is about, Peter. If my kingdom were like everybody else's, then they would fight. But that's not what my kingdom is about. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So I see three implications from this truth of Jesus that he wants to make sure we get from this, this, this interrogation by Pilate. First of all, there is a kingdom, but it's not a physical kingdom. Pilate, he's just concerned. He's the king of the Jews. He's just wondering, is Jesus going to be a threat to his authority? And to his? He's got a pretty nice life. The disciples haven't gotten this. It's why Peter cuts off Malchus' ear. They still don't get it because all they can think about is a physical kingdom. All they can think about is where Jesus gets to set up rule and they get to have a great life and they're in authority and they kick the Romans back to, to, to Italy. So what Jesus wants us to see here is when we talk about his kingdom, it's not about stuff. Now stuff is an essential part of life. We need food, we need clothes, we need a place to live. God created this material world, and it's a part of life. It's an essential part. And stuff is appealing. Julie and I went for our walk yesterday at the beach. We love walking on the beach, and then we went and had breakfast. I love food. I just think God is brilliant in terms of how to give us nourishment. He gives it through stuff that tastes good. Tell me this isn't good. This afternoon, I will be watching two basketball games. There will be guys dribbling a ball, trying to put it through a hoop. This is all physical stuff. I like my car. Stuff is appealing. We can see it, we can touch it, we can taste it. You, you know, because, because of all that physical stuff, it feels real and important. God created stuff for us to enjoy. He created the cosmos for our enjoyment to get some sense of how big he is. I grew up thinking stuff was somehow bad. Stuff isn't bad. The problem is we like stuff more than we do the spiritual. It's easier to see the stuff than it is to see the spiritual truth. Stuff not bad. We just end up getting way more excited about it. And the essence of life, the essence of Jesus' kingdom, it's harder to see. Luke quotes Jesus as saying, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Why do we get so excited about money and all this material stuff? We can feel it. We can touch it. Ah, makes it way more important than it actually is. 
The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The king is actually here. He's telling them these guys. Because Jesus is saying, because I'm here. The kingdom has now arrived because the king has now come to earth. That's what he's saying. The kingdom has gotten started. Now, it's a spiritual kingdom, and it is spectacular. Here's the reality of life that Jesus is trying to get, get Pilate to see, and as John records this, all the rest of us. And you understand, John didn't get any of this until after the resurrection. He's going back and quoting Jesus going, oh, now I understand what Jesus meant. We're redeemed back to God. The reality of life is that there is a God. And the biggest problem in life is that we've been separated from him. Those who enjoy his kingdom have been redeemed back. And he gives us this inner peace that comes from being connected to the king and this joy. But it's not as real as a big screen TV. It doesn't feel as real as sitting on the beach in Hawaii. So we get excited about all this stuff in the world. I think God gave us all this stuff for our enjoyment. Our problem is it just feels more real to us and we can tend to get more excited about that than the most important thing. There is a kingdom. The second implication is that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And this king came and he, he, he lived in this world to demonstrate and display God's glory that people would be overwhelmed with who he is. He died to redeem us, and he gives us peace. This is the essence, what's ever going on in the world. I have said these things to you back in chapter 16, that in me you may have peace. The world is messed up. I'm going to tell you there are no end to problems in the world. There are no end to the problems that come from just living in this world. There's no end. The spiritual kingdom is in the midst of this mess going, because I'm connected to God, I have peace. Because I'm connected to Christ. In me, in that relationship with me, you have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Life is going to be hard. It's going to stink. But in me, you have this peace. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus gives us joy. I don't ever get tired of talking about this. When I first came to this church, I had several that told me I talk about joy too much. I have never been dissuaded. I have never been discouraged. I don't think we can talk about joy too much. God created us to be happy. The essence of that joy is in relationship with him. With him. These things I've spoken to you. What's this kingdom? That the joy of Jesus might be in us. In the world you have tribulation. Let's quit being surprised when life is hard. Do you promise me you're going to quit being surprised? Promise me. You younger people, life is stinking hard. 
But for those of us who enjoy Jesus' kingdom, there's a peace and there is a joy that transcends the difficulty. One of my favorite texts is 1 Peter uh, 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 1, 8 and 9. This rocked my world as a young pastor when I finally read what Jesus was saying here. He's writing to people in 1 Peter that are facing persecution because they love Christ. Everybody with me? And here's what he says. Though you have not seen him, he's talking about Jesus now because he's already ascended and then you'll love him. Three markers of what it means to walk with Christ. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. You love Jesus, we can't see him, but we love him and we believe in him and then don't miss this third one. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. These are people being persecuted for loving Jesus. You guys with me? Now they're dealing with the difficulties of ordinary life, like everybody does. In addition to the difficulties of ordinary life, they're getting persecuted for loving Jesus, and look what Peter says their experience is. Now earlier, he said they're grieving and they're sorrowing. It's not the removal of grief, it's not the removal of sorrow. But in the midst of this, because we're connected to the king of the spiritual kingdom, we have a joy that if churchgoers could get this and have this experience, church would be different. Our witness in this country would be different. In the tribulations of life, the sorrow of life, we were rejoicing with inexpressible joy. I got people that don't even believe it's possible. This is Peter, inspired by God, writing about it. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. So those who live in Jesus' kingdom abide in him. Because here's the challenge I deal with. It feels like to me for most churchgoers, you know what their greatest disappointment in the church is? That they're not experiencing the depth of peace and joy that they would like. I've been doing this pastoral gig for going on 40 years. Let me tell you what the major disappointment is for people who go to church. Not as much peace and joy as they would like. I don't think we always understand why. It feels like to me, we churchgoers, we want the benefits of being connected with the king without actually being that devoted to connecting with the king. We want all the benefits of, uh, of this kingdom. We want all the benefits of the king, but do we really have time to hang with the king? We got this material world. Man, we could be playing golf, we can be making money, we can do all this stuff. And that stuff becomes more important than hanging with the king. Now Jesus, and John records it in chapter 15, has just talked about this. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, 
hang with me, spend time with me. We talk as evangelicals about this relationship with Jesus. It's become one of our phrases. It's a relationship with Jesus. But how much time do we actually hang with him? Reading the word. We're hanging with him here now. Make no mistake. Our priority on Sunday mornings is for us to gather together to abide in Jesus. But if our time really connected to him is limited to an hour a week, I know what my relationship would be like with my wife if I only spent an hour a week with her. She would not call that abiding. Want the benefits of the kingdom? We got to hang with the king. We got to know the king. We got to sit and talk about the king with others who love the king. That's how we get this benefits. They only come in this spiritual kingdom through the king. There's no other way to get them. It's through the king. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, we're hanging he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. It's reading this word. It's why we're committed to helping build first-handers, that you have more confidence in reading this word for yourself. It's what we're doing in life groups. Because there's nothing like being connected to Jesus. I like church. The stuff we do is good. But all of it is intended to get every one of us connected to the king. Not just on Sunday mornings, but that it be a priority in every one of our lives because the benefits of this kingdom are spectacular. They're only going to be enjoyed if we're connected to the king. Can't get them anyway else. Second truth. He came into this world to initiate a kingdom which is spiritual. But Jesus was born to bear witness to the truth for our eternal good. The second idea that Jesus conveys here that John wants to make sure we get. He's at this trial in front of Pilate now, right? I am a king, essentially he's saying. But my kingdom is not one you have to worry about. It's not material. It's spiritual. And I came to bear witness to the truth for eternal good. So Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, uh, uh, kingdom of this world, my servants, are we missing a verse? Then Pilate said to him, uh, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And we're missing part of verse 36 there. I apologize for missing that. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. Here's why he was born. To bear witness to the truth. You see it? That's why I came, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what Paul, Pilate means by answering this question, but my best sense is it's kind of this flippant. You came to bear witness to the truth, 
But who's to say what the truth is? Who's going to determine that? Feels like to me that's what Pilate's saying. Three implications. First one, there is truth. Now this is an idea that for a long time has been assumed that it feels like to me no longer is. Now I'm going to give you my picture of American history in about two minutes. Is that okay? Mary Hebert's doing a much more developed thing uh, 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 that you can get much more of the details. But I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to give you my picture in two minutes. This country was founded on this, the idea that there is truth. The truth was founded in God's character as it's revealed in Scripture. The folks that came here from other countries, that was their conviction. So this idea that there is truth, it's been eroding and devolving where it's just not accepted anymore. I think that process of moving from there is objective, definitive truth rooted in the character and nature of God, I think that's been eroding for a long time. The first significant marker as I look back in my lifetime was 1972 Roe v. Wade. Now, 1972, I was 13, and I wasn't paying any attention at all to Roe v. Wade. None. But when I look back, it was the first significant marker, not the cause of moving away from objective truth, but I go back and it's the first sign of that happening. And we have just kept moving. The last 10 years, the last five years, the last two years, holy cow. What marriage is, what gender is, just name the issue out there. At the foundation of this is a movement away from believing there is definitive truth. This has been going on a long time. So the truth of relativism is that there is no objective truth. Now, I remember talking about this stuff in college and having no idea that we would move. And, and man, I graduated in 1980, so 43 years ago. No idea we would be where we are today. The truth of relativism. There is no objective truth, but their objective truth is that there's no objective truth. Are you following me? That's their truth. And that is their moral absolute. Although they would argue there are no moral absolutes. Now, this is just my description. No absolute objective truth. And when I talk this generally, please understand it's way too simplistic, but I hope it'll tie in for you here. A particular individual or culture just simply determines their view of truth. So my truth might not be your truth, but your truth is as true as my truth, even if they disagree. Implication for us is the denial that there is any objective truth grounded in the character of the Almighty God or any other source. 
So the foundation of how they're looking at the world is very, very different than ours. I'm going to walk through this a little bit because I think sometimes we just get frustrated and we want to sit out there and talk about different conclusions without working back through that the foundation of how we're getting our worldview is so different. And, and there's an appeal to relativism. Guys, don't miss this. There's a, a tremendous appeal. You look tolerant. You, you look open-minded. You look like all ideas are equally valid because nobody has better ideas than somebody else. They're all equal. And it promotes humility, right? None of us has got one corner on the truth. And, and, and this one is a, a, a little, I think it's appealing, but it's a little less obvious. There's an underlying diminishing of responsibility because who's to say what's right and wrong? You just get to kind of do what you want and think what you want, and who's, there's no standard, again, to compare it against. So those with a relativistic mindset, when they see those of us that believe in objective truth, we look intolerant because we're saying this is the truth and that is not. We look closed-minded. We look like we're superior, like we think we're smarter than everybody else. Condescending. We have the truth and everybody else is just missing it. Promotes arrogance. This is not good, any of these things. Demands responsibility. If there really is truth, then there are standards that we should live up to. Alan Bloom wrote this book. He's a philosopher, not a Christian. He wrote a book, The Closing of the American Mind. It's primarily about the university system. He wrote it in 1987. Let me tell you, since then, relativism has just exploded since 1987. In 1987, he wrote, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. 1987. How many years ago was that? Somebody do the math quick. When are you mathematicians or engineers? 35 years? You got to talk louder for this guy with old ears. What'd you say? That's a long time. That's what he was saying over three decades ago. I look at what's happened in the last 10 years, even the last two, this is going fast. So most of the folks we're talking out there, and here's the problem, I don't think most of the folks that think about this, because it's become so much of a car, part of our culture, are even processing these ideas. And again, relativism looks so nice. It looks so humble. Relativism poses as humble by saying we are not smart enough to know what the truth is or if there is any universal truth. It sounds humble. But look carefully at what is happening. It's like a servant saying I'm not smart enough to know which person here is my master or if I even have a master. The result is that I don't have a master and I can be my own master. That is in reality what happens to relativists. In claiming to be lowly to know the truth, they exalt themselves as supreme arbiter of what they can think and do. This is not humility. This is the essence of pride. 
Now, do not hear me say that there are a bunch of people who believe in objective truth who are not arrogant, condescending, egotistical, not nice people. There's a lot of folks that believe in objective truth that are that. But relativism at its core is the epitome of arrogance. Because you now are the determiner of truth. So around here, we believe in absolute objective truth. I'm gonna summarize that in one word. You guys ready for the word? God. I just look at the cosmos. To not believe there's not somebody behind this doesn't make sense to me. But our conviction is there is objective truth, and objective truth is rooted in God himself. He is objective truth. He is objective reality. You still following me? So we can learn some things from the cosmos, but you guys have noticed he's invisible. Have you guys noticed that? It's a spiritual kingdom. It's hard to see who he is. So we're not going to know that much about him unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. So objective truth is in God. And then it is our conviction, using our reason. First of all, taking the Bible as the source, not because we naively accept it. If you haven't checked it out, compare it to the Quran, compare it to the Book of Mormon. There's all kinds of groups out there. And we got most of the people in the word, world won't even go to the Bible. Are you with me? Most won't even go to the Bible, so we already got a very different worldview than they do. Then we got something like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses that take it, but they don't interpret it accurately. And there's all kinds of groups that do that. So they say it's their source or part of their source. We got this post-evangelical movement, progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity, if you know that term, drifting away, is just a result of the relativism of our culture, and now it's affecting evangelicalism, where people are saying, I believe in the Bible, but they're picking and choosing which pieces they want to use. They are making themselves the arbiter of what's true in the Bible. And I can't tell you, I've had several conversations with people that do that. It is doggone frustrating. How do you know what part of the Bible is true and what is not? That's where we're living. These are the conversations I'm having. An accurate picture of God, the world, and ourselves comes. But Evangelicals, I think, are notorious for not using their brain too much. We're not going to be guilty of that. I've told you before, if somebody can show me where the Bible is incorrect, I will walk away from this faith and encourage everyone I know to. It stands on the accuracy of the Scripture, which if you look at it objectively, is in a different standard than any piece of literature out there, including other religious documentations, if people will just look at it. This is about using our brains. We believe in objective truth, and our picture of it is grounded in the Word. A relativist view, their view of the world, that's what they believe truth is. We humbly submit to God 
as revealed to us through his word. And when I was in seminary and became convinced the Bible was true, that was a very deliberate, intentional choice I made. Some 40 years later, I'm still living with it. Where my view of the world doesn't fit with what I see Scripture teaching, I change my view of the world. There is truth. Jesus is the primary promoter of truth. It's why he was born, to help us see the truth of God and ourselves. He is holy. He loves us despite our sinful nature and choices. Elena just testified to her experience of that. He desires our good. He is willing to pay the highest price to protect his righteousness and purchase our salvation. He's got to retain his holiness. The price had to be paid for our sin. Romans 3.26, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He is simultaneously Jesus the just, Judge and the justifier, the sacrifice in our place. To maintain his holiness, the price for sin had to be paid. But because he loves us, he purchases our salvation. And he chooses us to help others see the truth. This is, again, you've heard me say before, and I'll say it again. We don't always do that good a job at helping other people see the truth of who Jesus is. So I want to spend just a couple minutes. How do we help those with a relativistic worldview see the, the, the truth of, of God? Because this is almost everybody with whom we are talking now that doesn't love Christ. Almost everybody to some degree. I got two buddies right now who are in, in significant conversations with relativists who are meaningful in their lives. Two separate conversations in the last three weeks trying to figure out how do you talk to these fucks? I mean, I've had conversations with folks where we get to the spiritual stuff and they say, so Todd, do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? And I'll say, yes. I'll ask him, what do you believe? Anything you believe is good. And I'll say, so you think I'm wrong? And they'll say, no. How do you have a conversation? Because for them to say I'm wrong is a compromise of their moral absolute. A couple of times I press people, come on. Because when I was younger, you could have discussions with people where you could assume when we had differing opinions that at least one of us was wrong. Now we're talking to people who will refuse to say I'm wrong, though they hold something opposite to what I hold. First time this really became clear to me was talking with a dear buddy up in Seattle. His name was Doug, and this is a guy I invested a lot of my life in, so we knew each other pretty well. And he said to me, so Todd, you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? And I go, I do. And I asked, and he said, well, man, that is an arrogant, closed-minded position. Exactly what we would expect folks to say with a different worldview. I said, so do you believe in the heaven? He goes, yes. I said, well, who gets into heaven? Anybody who makes any effort at all. Again, Doug and I knew each other pretty well. So I said, Doug, I appreciate your perspective. You get to hold your perspective. That is absolutely what, what you get to do. Now, you just called me arrogant and closed-minded, and I'm not offended at all. We were buddies. But I said, I got my view from the Scripture. Where did you get your view? And this is where it's like people don't even think about it, that they've created their own view. So because we're buddies, and this is like 25, 27 years ago, 
I looked at him and said, you're right, there is an arrogant person in this conversation, Doug, but it's not me. Because I've act, we asked my view based upon looking at the credibility of Scripture to what's written there. You have determined what God says is true. So here's what I'm going to encourage us. Use reason. I'm just going to tell you, I'm having lots of conversations with folks and have been for a time who come from... I'm just going to tell you, it's terribly frustrating. But I got nothing else. And if you're with me with these folks, I do lots of question asking. Because I'm asking questions trying to help them understand this. That they have created a view for this world that comes out of their own head. Try to lead them there through questions. I'm not as direct with most folks as I was with Doug. He's a buddy. Reason is the only thing I got. But it's frustrating. It's challenging. But let's keep doing it. Let's try to track it back and help them appreciate what is the source of their worldview. And then please hear this, and Jesus has just hammered on this at the Last Supper, everywhere in Scripture. We authentically, consistently display the hope, joy, and love that comes from Jesus. This isn't just a cerebral thing. We got to love Him, we got to be patient, we got to be gracious. Because at the end of the day, their worldview will leave them wanting and empty. They're not going to be experiencing the peace and joy that can only come from Christ. So when that day hits them, we want them to look at us and go, so why is it Mike? Why is it Marty? They got something I don't have. The way we help them think about this is by living the way that Christ called us to live. We're just happier than they are. We're not going to press them. We're going to lovingly, as best we can, point out what we consider to be the inconsistency in how they're viewing the world. But that's when they'll think about this, maybe. When they see in us something different. When we get defensive and argumentative, it's not helpful to live with a joyful, non-anxious presence in all of life. Are we going to have tribulation in this world, folks? As we try to share the truth of Jesus with others, is it going to be frustrating? Let me just tell you, unbelievably. As I talk with folks, we win them over with the love of our lives, with the joy and peace that's there. I love this phrase from Dallas Willard because you want to talk about building joy filled communities of faith? Here's the foundation of it individuals. Disciples are those who have been so ravaged with Christ that others want to be like them. 
That's what Christianity looks like. Ah, now to get that, we're going to have to help them understand some things like there is a God. They just want what we want. So I got four pair of Hoka running shoes. How many of you have heard of Hoka running shoes? A few of you? You go anywhere. Everybody's wearing them. And you know what I love about Hoka's? I started wearing them about six years ago. They have not done an advertisement that I've seen anywhere. We were on the beach yesterday. This irritates my wife. So I like looking, and then I also mention it because it still irritates her. Every time we walk some by somebody that's wearing Hoka's, I go, Hoka's, Hoka's. Now, years ago, she, she gave up on telling me to stop saying it. She kind of said, don't will you stop saying that, but you understand some of you husbands that they're still joined pointing it out. She doesn't respond. She doesn't say anything, but that doesn't stop me because I can tell it still irritates her a bit. But here's what I love about Hoka's. They aren't advertised anywhere. I got them when nobody was wearing them. Now everybody's wearing them. You know why? They are great shoes. <laughs> I don't think so. And those who embrace the truth enjoy Jesus' kingdom. The truth is Jesus' kingdom is a present reality. We're transformed from objects of wrath into God's children. Death has been demolished for us, spiritual death has been taken away. We've been given the Spirit of God. Jesus assures us that he's always with us, even when this world stinks. We've been called and empowered to introduce others to Jesus' kingdom. Oh, man, this is good. And we anticipate the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. Right now, it's spiritual. It's a present reality. It exists now. And those who abide in the king, we enjoy that kingdom. In this world, there is tribulation. Come on and celebrate that with me. Think about how powerful this kingdom is. In a world where there's tribulation, we're experiencing joy and peace. Now that is power. That's a kingdom. Joy and peace in the midst of tribulation. Our king is like unbelievable. One day he's coming back. And that which is a present reality and a spiritual reality will be included in a material reality. He's going to set this world back and we will be raised with bodies that are imperishable, that will never change. 180 pounds, hair to my waist. Maybe a full beard. Haven't decided yet. <laughs> That's our kingdom. Right now, tribulation. So stand with me, will you? Stand with me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to abide with the king. Because there ain't anything better than abiding and staying connected with the king. Individually, collectively, hanging with the king is absolutely the best. And we're going to enjoy his kingdom. We are the happiest people in the world. We're never pretending there's not sorrow and grief. Ever. I got too many people that I care about deeply 
that don't know the spiritual kingdom than if they died right now would be separated from God for all eternity. I am never not grieving. Ever. At the same time, I'm connected to the king. And I'm enjoying this kingdom, this peace and joy that comes from him. And we get to help others enjoy it. Oh, man, 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 man. Let's enjoy the kingdom that comes from the King, Jesus, who came to give us the truth of who he is.